I'm Tracy from Stuff You Missed in History Class. Are you a small business owner or even someone who dreams of entrepreneurship? Then check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from iHeart Podcasts and Intuit QuickBooks. Join hosts Austin Hankwitz and Janice Torres as they interview entrepreneurs sharing insights around starting and nurturing a small business. You won't want to miss these inspiring stories of entrepreneurship and discovering ways to business differently so you can too. What does every grocery store aisle now have in common? Products that come in paper packaging. And not just the obvious ones like cereal boxes and juice cartons. From beauty products to boxed water, there are more opportunities to go papertarian than ever before. So why should you? Because paper comes from a renewable resource and can be recycled up to seven times. Simply put, it's the smart choice for the environment. And it turns out the easiest choice for you. Learn more at howlifeunfolds.com slash papertarian. Planning your next trip? Choice Hotel's family of 22 brands is over 7,400 locations and the perfect hotel for any traveler you want to be. Like a Cambria Hotel, serving up locally inspired craft cocktails for all my folks who maybe want to meet up and talk about Mad Royals. Check into a Radisson Hotel with flexible workspaces for you strivers who listen during business travel. Or a Comfort Hotel with free hot breakfast, family-friendly pools, and big spacious rooms for the parents who listen with their kids and need a little retreat. What are you waiting for? Join Choice Privileges and start earning points toward your next stay. Find a stay for any of you when you book direct at choicehotels.com, where travels come true. Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class, a production of iHeartRadio. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy V. Wilson. And I'm Holly Fry. So that same trip into Boston that brought about our recent episode on Mary Dyer also inspired this one. I was wandering around the Museum of Fine Arts and I stumbled onto a set of paintings. Uh, They depicted the five senses and I found them to be just very striking and very beautiful, very realistic with this very dark, almost somber kind of color palette and also at the same time, just full of lovely details, like the way the light would fall onto the curls of one subject's hair or the way their clothing draped around them. These paintings turned out to be by 17th century Flemish painter Michelina Wautier, who you will also hear pronounced more like Wautier, depending on whether the person is using a French pronunciation or a Dutch one. I heard a lot of art historians talking about her. They were split on what pronunciations (laughs) that they used. And it also didn't seem to like fall along the lines of English speakers using one pronunciation and French or Dutch or whatever speakers using a different one. Um, We're going to stick with Wautier just because that seems like it will work best uh, for us. And we also won't randomly be slipping into a different pronunciation at random times in the episode. This is somebody who has been relatively unknown, even among people who specialize specifically in 17th century art until very recently. So unfortunately, we don't have a lot of biographical detail about Michelina Wautier, and what we do know is still evolving. For example, her birth year. The first major retrospective of Watier's artistic career was held in 2018 as a collaboration by the Museum on the Strum, see that as M-A-S or Maas, and Rubens House in Antwerp, Belgium. 
Material created for that exhibition, including the exhibition catalog, gives the date of her baptism as September 2nd, 1604. The first U.S. exhibition of her artwork is the one that's going on at the MFA in Boston, and material connected to that exhibition gives the date of September 2nd, 1614. Normally, in this kind of a situation, we might say something like Source X gives her birth date as X, but Source Y gives her birth date as Y. But in the case of Michelina Wattier, that 10-year difference is a big deal. Her father, Charles Wattier, died on November 24, 1617. Michelina would have been one of at least six siblings and half-siblings still living at home, and the youngest of them was only about a year old. We really don't know how her mother, Jeanne Georges, supported herself and all of these children after Charles's death, although she was from a pretty wealthy merchant family and she might have gotten financial support from them. So was this Michalina's experience from the age of three or from the age of 13? Was she one of the oldest children in the household when her father died or was she one of the youngest? One of Michalina's brothers was also named Charles and he became an artist as well. He was born in 1609. If he was five years older than Michalina, we can imagine that maybe she looked up to him as an artist, and perhaps he was able to mentor her and help oversee her artistic education as she was growing up. If he was five years younger than Michalina, he may still have provided her access to artistic training and space that she wouldn't have had otherwise when they were both adults. But it could have been a very different dynamic. So the catalog from that 2018 exhibition in Belgium cites a record of baptism that was part of a volume of records that ended in March of 1609. So as I started working on this, it seemed like the 1604 date was probably the correct date. But then I emailed the Center for Netherlandish Art at the MFA, which organized this current exhibition there, to ask if there was maybe some newly uncovered information correcting the date to 1614, And according to the response that I got back from them, yes, newly discovered documents have indeed placed her birth year as 1614 and not 1604. If you're curious about what those documents might be, so am I, but I don't know. Miguelina Wattier was born in Mons, southwest of Brussels, which at the time was part of the southern Netherlands under the control of Habsburg, Spain. Habsburg, Spain is a modern term describing the territory ruled by Charles I and Charles II in the 16th and 17th centuries. Habsburg, Spain included what's now Spain and Portugal, much of modern Germany, the Netherlands, southern Italy, Sicily, and Sardinia, although it gained and lost parts of that territory at various points. Spain also started aggressively colonizing the Americas during these years. Michalina's mother was her father's second wife. The elder Charles Wattier had five children with his first wife, Barb, before her death sometime in 1601 or very early 1602. Then Charles and Jeanne got married in February of 1602, and they had six children together, Michalina, and five boys. We mentioned that Jeanne was from a wealthy merchant family. Barb was as well, and there was more than one marriage connecting these two families. Michalina's certificate of baptism lists her name as Maria Magdalena, and we don't really know 
when the name Michelina came into the picture. There are also a lot of different spellings of the name Wautier in written records. People used different spellings and pronunciations depending on which dialect of Dutch they spoke or if they spoke French or some other language. As far as we know, she was the only girl among her siblings and half-siblings to survive to adulthood. Based on what we know of Michelina's mother's family and the fact that Michelina was able to focus so much on painting, this family was probably very affluent even after her father's death, and the quality of her artwork suggests that she had private art teachers. The subjects that she chose to portray in her art also suggest that she had a really solid education in subjects like religion, mythology, and history. She signed contracts in both French and Dutch, so she probably spoke both of those languages. And it also seems that the Watier family was socially prominent and respected. Michelina's grandfather and great-grandfather had served as aldermen, and her father held positions at court. Michelina's half-brother Jacques joined the Royal Guard in the capital of Madrid in 1615, and he was later elevated to the nobility. Her brother Pierre also became the Herald of Arms for the Duchy of Gulders in 1628. Michelina Wattier probably started studying art while living in Mons, but we don't really know where she studied or who her teachers were or if she traveled to study art elsewhere. She also wasn't the only woman artist in the area at the time. Another was Anna Francisca de Brun, who was born in 1604 and got married in the Church of Saint-Germain in Mons in 1628. In 1632, the chapel of Notre-Dame-du-Bon-Vouloir was completed not far away, and de Brun painted the Assumption of the Virgin to hang behind the chapel's high altar. We don't really know if Michelina and Anna Francisca knew one another. It seems like they might have. Michelina almost certainly would have known about Anna Francisca's work as an artist. She was painting for the chapel that was sort of right down the street from where her family lived. Michelina's mother, Jeanne, died on June 19, 1638. Since Michelina was not married, she was probably still living with her mother in Mons. At least, that would have been what was expected of her, especially if Jeanne needed any kind of help or care near the end of her life. Sometime after Jeanne's death, Michelina moved to Brussels, where her brother Charles lived, probably into the home that he had already established there. This means that Charles had enough money for a home that was large enough to also accommodate his sister and possibly to house an art studio for the two of them as well. The first written mention we have of Charles Wattier as an artist is from 1642. And the first mention we have of Michelina Wattier as an artist is from right about the same time. But both of these really suggest that neither of them was just starting out as a painter. For Charles, this was a mention that he was one of the people who was painting in Brussels without first becoming a citizen of Brussels or joining the guild. That suggests he was supposed to have done both of those things already. He was not a student. He was somebody who was expected to join the guild and pay its associated fees in order to work professionally as an artist. For whatever reason, he was not doing that. Uh, later references also describe him as foreign trained as an artist. That foreign training may have happened in Italy. He did eventually become a citizen and join the guild. First mention of his doing that is in 1651. Not really clear why, why he didn't do it initially. He just didn't know that he had to file paperwork. 
<laughs> For Michalina, the first reference we have is an engraving of her portrait of military commander Andreas Cantelmo, Duke of Popoli, which was created in 1643. Although Michalina's original painting no longer exists, the engraving made from it suggests that she was already a mature, skilled artist. The fact that Cantelmo commissioned this work from her also suggests that she had already established a reputation for herself, although we don't know what work he might have seen that led him to want her to paint his portrait. The engraving was also created by Paulus Pontius, who did extensive work with artists like Peter Paul Rubens and Antony van Dyck. So it seems like she already had a lot of connections within the artistic community and to possible customers and patrons. We will talk about Michalina Wattier's career as an artist and glean some more stuff about her life from what we know of her work after a sponsor break. I'm Tracy V. Wilson from Stuff You Missed in History Class. Did you know small businesses make up 99.9% of all businesses in the United States? The world is powered by entrepreneurs, and if you're a small business owner or even someone dreaming of starting your own business, then you'll want to check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from Ruby Studio, from iHeartMedia, and Intuit QuickBooks. And every episode, hosts Austin Hankwitz and Janice Torres talk to entrepreneurs about how they've grown from the lessons of launching and nurturing a small business, and how they have found success being their own boss. From the excitement of first starting out to finding the right tools and resources to process invoices and payments like QuickBooks Money, you won't want to miss these inspiring stories of entrepreneurship and discovering ways to business differently so you can too. And if you're a small business owner or even someone dreaming of starting your own business, then you'll want to check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from Ruby Studio, from iHeartMedia, and Intuit QuickBooks. Planning your next trip? Choice Hotels has a stay for any traveler you want to be with 22 brands and over 7,400 locations. Whether you're a business traveler, a family road tripper, someone who wants to seek out history and maybe make your own, or just planning a quick getaway, Choice Hotels has a stay for any you. Like a Cambria Hotel, where you can be a cocktail connoisseur and sip locally inspired craft beverages at downtown locations in the center of it all. This is a fun way to visit cities with a lot of history and a lot of fun in mind. Or a Radisson Hotel for for all our productivity powerhouses out there. With flexible workspaces and on-site restaurants, you'll get the most out of your work trip. You'll get the coffee, the Wi-Fi, and the work done. And we can't forget about comfort hotels. Imagine you're a family road tripper, waking up in your big spacious room and then heading down to a free hot breakfast for the entire family, including waffles. So you'll be well-fed and ready for the day's adventure, even if that's just relaxing. After that, you're spending all afternoon relaxing by the pool. You deserve it. What are you waiting for? Join Choice privileges and start earning points toward your next stay. Find a stay for any you. Book directly at choicehotels.com where travels come true. If you use paper, you're a human, but if you choose paper, you're a papertarian, someone who lives a paper-based lifestyle because it has a positive impact on the planet and also because it's the easiest choice you'll make all day, seriously. It's as easy as reaching for boxed instead of bottled water. It's as easy as opting for beauty products that come in paper packaging. It's as easy as grabbing eggs in a cardboard container. And that's all in one trip to the grocery store, which, if everyone's being honest, you were planning to go to anyway. But paper isn't just an easy choice. Papertarians know that it's the smart choice, too. 
Because paper comes from trees, a renewable and sustainably managed resource. And paper products are designed to be recycled. In fact, when you choose products that come in paper-based packaging, those fibers can go on to be recycled up to seven times. So why wouldn't you go Papertarian? Learn more at howlifeunfolds.com slash papertarian. Michalina Wattier is not the first 17th century woman artist we have talked about on this show. Others include Italian artist Lavinia Fontana and Artemisia Gentileschi and German entomologist and illustrator Maria Sabuya Miriam. Other prominent women artists from the period who we have not discussed include Dutch artist Judith Leister. She, Artemisia Gentileschi, and Michalina Wattier are sometimes grouped together as examples of just especially prominent and skilled women artists from this period. But there were many, many other women working as artists in the 17th century whose work did not become as well known. In the chapter Michalina Wattier and Working Women in Early Modern Europe from the 2018 exhibition catalog, Martha Howell writes that there were dozens of professional women painters, perhaps even hundreds in the 16th and 17th centuries, and that there were also many more women who painted, but just not professionally. Many, but not all, of the most well-known women artists during this era were the daughters of male artists like... Artemisia Gentileschi's father, Orazio, and Lavinia Fontana's father, Prospero, were both prominent professional painters. Of course, not every woman artist who came to prominence also had an artist father. Judith Leister's father was a brewer. But having a father, or maybe an uncle, or some other adult male artist in the immediate family could really open up a lot of doors for women to study art and find commissions and find places to exhibit their work. There were also a lot of limits on the lives and careers of most women artists. In much of Europe, membership in an artist guild was required to work professionally. But many artist guilds accepted few, if any, women. Women were often barred from art schools and anatomy classes and workshops where they might learn to draw and paint the human form, especially if those classes involved working with nude male models. As a result, a lot of women artists focused on subjects that they had easier access to, so things like flowers and landscapes and their own families and the families of people they knew. The style of painting that evolved in the southern Netherlands under Spanish Habsburg rule is known as Flemish Baroque painting, and still lifes of flowers and flower gardens were a big part of this style. This gave professional women painters some opportunities to make a living by painting something that was really popular and that they also had easy access to, and which was considered appropriate subject matter for women to be interested in. Of course, there were exceptions to these trends, a notable one being Artemisia Gentileschi, who we have covered on the show before. We just ran our episode on her as a Saturday classic. But another is Michalina Wautier. The only other artist we know of in her family is her brother Charles, and the two of them seem to have come into their own as professionals at roughly the same time, at least within a few years of each other. We know of only two still-life paintings in Wattier's body of work, which may have been made together and intended as a pair. We're going to talk a bit more about those pieces later. 
She also did portraits and paintings depicting moments from history and mythology, which was not common for women artists at all. And one painting in particular suggests that she had a lot of opportunity to work with nude male models, something that women were generally prohibited from doing. And most, but of course not all, women painters at the time slowed down or stopped working entirely after getting married. But Watier never married. It seems likely that living and working with her brother Charles gave Michelina Watier access to resources and educational opportunities that she just would not have had access to otherwise. She and her brother almost certainly consulted one another on their work as well, and they may have even collaborated, although each of them really developed their own style. In particular, Charles's brushwork tends to be smoother and more blended, while Michelina's is often a lot more layered with a lot shorter and tighter strokes. This is something you can't really see unless you're looking at the painting in person or if you have a really, really high-resolution image of it that can retain all of that detail. Some of their commissions may also have come about through their other brother's military connections. Both Charles and Michelina painted a lot of portraits of officers who were serving the Spanish crown and other people who were connected with the Spanish Habsburgs. One of Michelina Watier's major patrons was Archduke Leopold Wilhelm of Austria, who bought at least four of her works and probably commissioned at least one of them. Leopold was governor of the Spanish Netherlands from 1647 to 1656, and he was also an avid art collector. There's a painting of him in his enormous gallery surrounded by his collection, which includes paintings by Titian, Raphael, Peter Paul Rubens, and Anthony van Dyck, among others. A painting that the Archduke almost certainly commissioned from Michelina Watier is called the Bacchanal or the Triumph of Bacchus, which is often described as her masterpiece. And this one painting illustrates so many of the ways that Watier really broke away from what was expected of women and women artists. Like, there was a period when the creator of this painting was not identified, and people saw it and just assumed that it was by a man because of all the things we're about to talk about. Number one, this painting was big. It was more than nine, it is, it still exists, more than nine feet high and 12 feet wide, or about 2.7 by 3.7 meters. So it really wasn't something a person could easily create while painting on an easel in her own home or in a small studio space. Number two was the subject matter. The mythical god Bacchus reclining on a leopard skin while being carried in what looks like a wheelbarrow pushed by a satyr. He's in the middle of a procession of more than 15 people, most of them male and most of them at least partially nude. These people represent a spectrum of ages and body types, suggesting that Watier had extensive knowledge of anatomy and had worked with enough live art models to be able to represent this level of physical diversity, and specifically that she had worked with nude male models. And this painting is radical and subversive in yet another way, there is only one figure who's looking outward from the canvas, and that is a woman painted in the right corner wearing a blush pink drape that exposes one of her breasts. This is a self-portrait of Watier herself. We, of course, do not know her motivations or her thought process for putting herself in the painting in this way, but it is really easy to conclude from it that she was a person who wanted to push some boundaries. Watier also created a full self-portrait sometime around 1649. 
it shows her as an artist, sitting in an easel holding brushes and an artist's palette with the paints that she's about to use. There's a faintly visible outline of a person's head on the canvas, suggesting that she is working on a portrait of a man. She is elegantly dressed, wearing a pearl necklace with her hair curling down to her shoulders. There's a small pocket watch near the edge of the easel, something several art historians have interpreted as reference to the passage or fleetingness of time, and also as a mark of her affluence because watches were expensive. And it's incredibly detailed. Wattier even painted in the weave of the canvas that she's about to start painting on with such clarity that it is hard to tell what's detail that she added and what is the actual weave of the physical canvas. About a year after making this self-portrait, Wattier created a series of paintings depicting the five senses. Sets like these, depicting the five senses, the four seasons, the four elements, the seven deadly sins, things like that, they had started to become popular in the 16th century. Although artists had been creating these kinds of sets as far back as the early Middle Ages. These sets of paintings were often full of allegory and symbolism. In terms of the five senses, artists often drew from Aristotelian philosophy, and they arranged the senses in a hierarchy with sight at the top of the hierarchy and then hearing, smell, taste, and touch. One reason for the popularity of sets like these was that printmakers could sell prints of the whole set at once rather than one painting at a time. At the same time, though, intact sets of all of the original paintings are pretty rare. Wattier's five senses may have been another commission from someone very wealthy, because these paintings seem to have been intended to be hung as a set in a row. That would have required a lot of wall space. But if that's the case, we don't know who commissioned them. Often paintings of the five senses focus on beautiful, idealized women in very elaborate settings, but these are much simpler, and they depict five boys— the boy's orientation and positioning suggests that they're meant to be displayed in that Aristotelian order. They were ordered this way the first time they were listed in a sale catalog as well. That happened in 1883. These paintings are very dark. They're mostly painted in shades of browns and blacks and dark greens. Sight looks a bit older than the other boys, and he's looking at his own hand through glasses that are held up to his face. Hearing is looking out from the canvas playing a recorder. Smell is pinching his nose with one hand while holding a rotten egg in the other one. Taste is about to bite into a piece of bread. And touch has just cut his finger on a knife. And he's looking at this situation as though he's just not quite sure what just happened. Her models for these paintings may have been boys and teenagers who she knew and whose families she was friends with. The same boys appear in some of her other works. The boys in Taste and Touch are also painted in a piece called Two Boys, in which one boy is holding a partially eaten egg and the other seems to be trying to take it from him. The boy shown in Hearing is also one of the two boys in Boys Blowing Bubbles, which is exactly what it sounds like. It's boys blowing soap bubbles through a straw. Two boys and boys blowing bubbles are examples of Watier's genre paintings, that is, paintings meant to represent scenes from everyday life. We will talk about some of Watier's later works after a quick sponsor break. 
I'm Tracy V. Wilson from Stuff You Missed in History Class. Did you know small businesses make up 99.9% of all businesses in the United States? The world is powered by entrepreneurs. And if you're a small business owner or even someone dreaming of starting your own business, then you'll want to check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from Ruby Studio, from iHeartMedia, and Intuit QuickBooks. And every episode hosts Austin Hankwitz and Janice Torres talk to entrepreneurs about how they've grown from the lessons of launching and nurturing a small business and how they have found success being their own boss. From the excitement of first starting out to finding the right tools and resources to process invoices and payments like QuickBooks Money, you won't want to miss these inspiring stories of entrepreneurship and discovering ways to business differently so you can too. And if you're a small business owner or even someone dreaming of starting your own business, then you'll want to check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from Ruby Studio, from iHeartMedia, and Intuit QuickBooks. Planning your next trip? Choice Hotels has a stay for any traveler you want to be with 22 brands and over 7,400 locations. Whether you're a business traveler, a family road tripper, someone who wants to seek out history and maybe make your own, or just planning a quick getaway, Choice Hotels has a stay for any you. Like a Cambria Hotel, where you can be a cocktail connoisseur and sip locally inspired craft beverages at downtown locations in the center of it all. This is a fun way to visit cities with a lot of history and a lot of fun in mind. Or a Radisson Hotel for for all our productivity powerhouses out there. With flexible workspaces and on-site restaurants, you'll get the most out of your work trip. You'll get the coffee, the Wi-Fi, and the work done. And we can't forget about comfort hotels. Imagine you're a family road tripper, waking up in your big spacious room and then heading down to a free hot breakfast for the entire family, including waffles. So you'll be well-fed and ready for the day's adventure, even if that's just relaxing. After that, you're spending all afternoon relaxing by the pool. You deserve it. What are you waiting for? Join Choice privileges and start earning points toward your next stay. Find a stay for any you. Book directly at choicehotels.com where travels come true. If you use paper, you're a human, but if you choose paper, you're a papertarian, someone who lives a paper-based lifestyle because it has a positive impact on the planet and also because it's the easiest choice you'll make all day, seriously. It's as easy as reaching for boxed instead of bottled water. It's as easy as opting for beauty products that come in paper packaging. It's as easy as grabbing eggs in a cardboard container. And that's all in one trip to the grocery store, which, if everyone's being honest, you were planning to go to anyway. But paper isn't just an easy choice. Papertarians know that it's the smart choice, too. Because paper comes from trees, a renewable and sustainably managed resource. And paper products are designed to be recycled. In fact, when you choose products that come in paper-based packaging, those fibers can go on to be recycled up to seven times. So why wouldn't you go papertarian? Learn more at howlifeunfolds.com slash papertarian. We mentioned earlier that still-life paintings of flowers were very popular in 17th century artwork and that they were a particularly popular subject for women, in part due to those flowers being so easy for women to access. But as we noted earlier, there are only two known floral still-lifes painted by Michelina Wattier. They are flower garland with dragonfly and flower garland with butterfly. Both of them were painted in 1652. These may have been a set 
In both of these paintings, the garland is draped in between two animal skulls. The flowers are really detailed and delicate, which contrasts with these animal skulls that extend sort of past the edges of the canvas. Another painting that may have been commissioned by Archduke Leopold Wilhelm was one of Italian Jesuit missionary Martino Martini. Michelino Wattier painted this portrait in 1654. Martini was in Brussels from February to June of that year, and he had audiences with the Archduke during that time. Martini did his missionary work in China, and he was the first person in Europe to publish an atlas of China. Wattier painted him in Chinese garments, which is likely what he was wearing while in Brussels. He was known as Wei Quan Go in China. That name is shown in the painting's top right corner. This is the only known portrait of Martini made during his life. A posthumous portrait created after he died in 1661 doesn't resemble this one much at all. Michelina Wattier's last known work is Annunciation, painted in 1659, showing the angel Gabriel telling Mary that she would conceive and give birth to Jesus Christ. Although this painting still exists, it seems like it was cut down on the top and sides at some point. It's currently 200 by 134 centimeters, or 6.5 feet by 4.4 feet, but older catalogs give dimensions that are more than three meters high and two meters wide, or roughly 10 feet by six and a half feet. So it's hard to get the full effect of what this painting was supposed to look like. The angel Gabriel's wings and garments are cut off at the side, and what should really look like a very dramatic break in the clouds with the holy dove and beams of light coming through it seems almost muted. We don't really know if Watier continued to paint after creating this work, or if she didn't, why she stopped. Over the 16 years between 1643 and 1659, when we know she was active as an artist, she created roughly 40 known works. These represented nearly every genre of painting that was part of the Flemish Baroque style, including portraits, still lifes, genre paintings, and history paintings. This is a much broader range than the vast majority of women painters at the time, and the history paintings in particular are notable because they are so far outside the realm of what women were thought capable of depicting. In 1668, Michelita and Charles Wattier bought a home near Notre-Dame-de-la-Chapelle in Brussels, and in 1689, she died. With the birth year of 1614, she would have been about 75 years old. She was buried at Notre-Dame-de-la-Chapelle, and she left all of her possessions to her brother, so any paintings that had not already been sold to someone else probably stayed within her family. Charles Wattier died in 1703. Like Michelina, he had never married, and he left most of his possessions to his nephew, Augustin Charles, who was master of the mint. Augustin Charles was allowed to dispose of those possessions however he saw fit. Charles Wattier also left an annuity to his maid, a woman named Jeanne Ledoux, and his will specified that this was in recognition of her service and devotion to his sister. That has led to some speculation about whether Michelina needed particular care in the last years of her life that Jeanne was responsible for, or what their relationship might have been like. Based on all of the stuff that we have gleaned from her what we know of her life and work, Michelina Wattier seems to have been really well-known and well-respected in Brussels during her life. Multiple paintings of hers were bought by and possibly commissioned by Archduke Leopold Wilhelm, and she also made 
multiple portraits of prominent people who only would have worked with her if she had an established and respected reputation as an artist. She and her brother also seem to have been really well off. They bought and sold various pieces of property. They were able to support themselves and their lives and work as artists with no apparent problem. But after her death, Michelina Wattier was almost entirely forgotten, and a lot of her work was misattributed to other artists. In some cases, with her signature on her work painted over and replaced with someone else's. One thing that could have helped keep her name and legacy alive in the public consciousness was prints of her self-portrait. This was something many artists did essentially as a marketing tool to promote themselves while living and to help protect their memory after their deaths. But no prints of her self-portrait were ever made, and we don't know why. To be clear, her name did not totally disappear from history. She signed and dated roughly half her known pieces. And even with somebody painting over some of her signatures for unknown reasons, art historians and other writers still knew who she was. She was mentioned in texts from time to time in the centuries that followed. But it really wasn't until the end of the 20th century that people started really taking dedicated effort to correct those misattributions and also realizing just how prominent and groundbreaking her work had been. Various art historians today describe her as one of the old masters alongside contemporaries like Artemisia Gentileschi, Peter Paul Rubens, Anthony Van Dyke, and Johannes Vermeer. In terms of misattributed work, at least one of those signed paintings wound up being attributed to Frowns Wouters, who was one of Rubens' students, probably because of their similarly spelled last names. Some of Wattier's works were also incorrectly attributed to her brother. Her Bacchanal was listed in the inventory of the Archduke's possessions after his death in 1662, but her name was not included. Wattier was re-identified as its creator in 1967. Her Annunciation was attributed to French court painter Pierre Bedeau until her signature was discovered during a restoration in 1983. By the 18th century, her self-portrait had been misattributed to past podcast subject Artemisia Gentileschi. Three different experts independently reviewed it in 2013 and concluded that it was Wattier's work. By that point, people had started unearthing more information about her. In 1991, art historian Pierre-Yves Curies had seen a painting by Charles Wattier while visiting a church. He learned that Charles was from Mons, and then he found mention of a Michelina Wattier, also from Mons, and thought they might be siblings, but really didn't have a way to prove it. In 1993, art historian Katalina van der Stiegelen had been visiting a museum in Vienna to see a painting they had in storage, which had been attributed to Anthony van Dyck. While walking through the storage area, the Bacchanal caught her eye. She could see it had to be something notable, but it didn't match a style she immediately recognized. So she started researching its creator. In 1996... Kiris read an article she'd published about Wattier and realized that their work was overlapping. Following the work of these and other art historians, people started looking for and finding lost and previously unknown works by Michelina Wattier. While preparing for that 2018 exhibition that we've mentioned a couple of times, Rubenhaus in Antwerp announced an effort to find The Five Senses and Garland with a Butterfly, 
At that point, the five senses was known only as a black-and-white representation of hearing that had been printed in a 1975 auction catalog. Garland with Butterfly had been rediscovered before disappearing again in 1985. All of these paintings have since been found. Rosemarie and Ike von Otterlo, who founded the Center for Netherlandish Art at the MFA, along with Susan and Matthew Weatherby, bought the five senses in a private sale in 2020 and have loaned it to the MFA. Garland with Butterfly is on loan from a private collection to het Nordbrabrands Museum in the Netherlands. The 2018 exhibition of Wattier's work at Museum Andestrum was called Michelina, Baroque's Leading Lady. It included 21 of her paintings, as well as related pieces by other artists. This exhibition really sparked renewed interest and name recognition, and that led to discoveries of other previously lost or unknown work, including and in addition to the five senses and garland with butterfly that we just mentioned. The exhibition at the MFA is called Michelina Wattier and the Five Senses, Innovation in 17th Century Flemish Painting. It includes the five senses, Wattier's self-portrait, and other works by her predecessors and contemporaries. This is a collaborative effort by the Center for Netherlandish Art at the MFA and Brown University. Six doctoral students from Brown helped curate this exhibition as part of a graduate practicum. The Center for Netherlandish Art has also started a new series called CNA Studies, and its first volume features essays by these six students. The order of things that really caught my eye when I was walking through here were like the paintings. And the fact that it was student-curated, I was like, the, how cool is that? That's amazing. Um, yeah, so, yeah, that's Michelina Wattier, um, who I chose to do an episode on knowing we didn't know much about her and then realized we really know almost nothing about her. Do you have listener mail? I have listener mail. I do not know if this person says Brianna or Brianna, so one or the other. Hello, Holly and Tracy. I was once again so excited to hear mention of my hometown on your show. I've spent so much time listening to you as I explore the place where I grew up and have moved back to as an adult. It is interesting how history is told through the bias of the teller. I always understood the invention of the roller coaster was absolutely derived from the inspiration of tourism and being outdoors from our switchback. There was never a mention of Christianity nor a diversion from alcohol when local historians would brag about the inspiration. I thought I'd share some fun anecdotes about the switchback today. While the original switchback tracks are long gone, its history still brings tourists to visit Jim Thorpe. There is a tourist train that goes to the peak of an adjacent mountain in town, and you can view the clearing for the switchback cars, the nearby river, and the Pocono scenery. The switchback is part of the Rails to Trails project, something I'd love to hear more about as I enjoy hiking, biking, and walking on those paths frequently. We have a run to the top of the switchback trail every fall. Our soccer and track coaches in school would have us run to the top or as far as we could of this mountain several times during conditioning season, and I'm glad as an adult I can opt out of that activity. I've attached a photo of a replica railroad car that resides at the bottom of the trail as well as a photo of the path, although it admittedly doesn't do it justice. It truly is quite narrow, quite tall, and quite steep. My doggo Paisley and I love to listen to you while we take our walks, keep up the well-researched work. Um, 
That is either Brianna or Brianna or hopefully not a third pronunciation that I did not think of. So uh, I loved this email about the, <laughs> the switchback railway in, in the city of Jim Thorpe. Um, I should have said at the top of the reading this email that that was what we were talking about. Also, I don't know if we can make an episode about the Rails to Trails project, but that is also a project I am very fond of. Um, and one of the things I thought about in reading about how this picture does not really do it justice because it really is narrow and steep reminded me um, of the time that we did a live podcast in San Francisco. And I've seen plenty of footage of San Francisco. <laughs> and I had looked at Google Maps um, and where I was thinking about going was like like a mile away. A mile is a like a space I walk routinely a mile somewhere not a big deal um and I just it wasn't until I was there in person that I really understood how big the hills were yeah <laughs> I was like I I didn't I didn't understand this so I'm imagining at the bottom of the former uh switchback railway in Jim Thorpe I might also be like well I was not prepared for how steep this actually is <laughs> no thank you yeah. Uh, so thank you so much for these pictures and for this email. If you would like to send us a note about this or any other podcast, we're at History Podcasts at iHeartRadio.com. We're also all over social media at Miss in History. That's where you'll find our Facebook, Twitter, Pinterest, and Instagram. And you can subscribe to our show on the iHeartRadio app and anywhere else you like to get your podcasts. Stuff You Missed in History Class is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350-plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeartRadio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Asking the right questions can greatly impact your future, especially when it comes to your finances. So if you're looking for a financial advisor you can trust, certified financial planner professionals are committed to acting in your best interest. That's why it's got to be a CFP. Find your CFP professional at letsmakeaplan.org.